Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at PCSBnetwork.com today. Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there. I wanted to talk to you all briefly before we get tonight's episode started. I've been doing a little research on podcasts and podcasting, and I found that most people tend to prefer narrative-driven podcasts as opposed to scripted podcasts. If you're a listener to the Esoteric Book Club, you know that a majority of my content is scripted. And frankly, that's what takes up most of my time in regards to the podcast itself. Outside of reading the book, that is. In fact, most of my scripts are about 20 pages in length. Sure, I've gotten quicker over the years, but it still takes quite a while to get that script written. And really, even I've noticed that at times, parts of my podcast just sound like I'm reciting stuff off the page. It's not super engaging, and if it's not engaging for me, it's probably not engaging for you. So starting with this episode, we are going to do things a little bit more off the cuff. Something a bit more conversational. I've got a whole list of notes I've taken from this book, and I'm just going to give you my ideas and impressions on what it was I've read. There's a few times I'll read some quotes, but for the most part, this is just me getting words on the page, so to speak. Now this is where I have a big ask for all of you. First, I appreciate it if you would all be patient with me, because this episode may not be that great. Next, I would actually like some feedback. If you like the way this is structured, how the episode flows, and if the content is engaging, please, please let me know. Hell, if it's not any of those things, also let me know. With all of that out of the way, let's get on with the show.
In World War I, author Ernest Hemingway was wounded by an incoming mortar shell. He recorded his experience immediately afterwards in his semi-autobiographical novel, A Farewell to Arms. He said, I tried to breathe, but my breath just wouldn't come. And that's when he felt his consciousness slide outwards from his body. He began to drift and float upwards into the sky. Suddenly it occurred to him, Wait a minute, you're not dead. And with that realization, he felt his consciousness slam back into his body, and with that jolt, he drew breath, and again, was alive. Hemingway's account seems miraculous, yes, but it's not unique. The NDE, or near-death experience, seems to be a nearly universal experience for people who have come to the brink of death. What we normally see in these accounts begins with an OBE, or out-of-body experience. Basically, you feel yourself separated from yourself. You feel yourself become lighter, floating, flying even. Sometimes from this vantage point, you can look down at your body, at those around you, or the surrounding scene as it takes place. Oftentimes, people are subjected to what's called a life review. This could come in the form of a movie, a picture book, or in some cases, people actually relive every event in their life leading up to the point of death. In a large number of cases, we also have accounts of a tunnel. It's either going to be a tunnel of light that leads to a point of darkness, or a tunnel of darkness that leads to a point of light. It's always one or the other, but never both. Most survivors also report an ineffable, universal sense of awareness. It's really hard to describe this, and the best I can come up with is that it's almost like another sense of being. So imagine trying to describe vision to someone who is born blind or explain sound to someone that was born deaf. It's really hard to explain if you haven't experienced it yourself. A lot of people experience going to another place, another realm, a whole separate world that is not involved with the mortal realm. As you will hear, this description will vary from place, culture, time period, and really from individual to individual, because even within the same demographics, your end-life location could be very, very different. And finally, something that is so common that it's almost become a trope in TV and movies. When someone is on the threshold of death, they often see someone. This someone could be an individual that they knew in life, an ancestor, a psychopomp, which is basically just a guide to the afterlife, or even an animal. In a few rare cases, people even report encountering an entity that is not human. In the case of these inhuman entities, this is where things get really, really interesting. They're generally described as being very similar to one another, but it's the cultural lens through which the person views it that changes how they are described. In some cultures, they're fairies. In some, they're angels. In others, they're demons. 
and in some modern cases, we would even say that they were alien. There's enough similarities that we could say that the NDE, or near-death experience, is a universal human trait, because we see the same groups of experiences pop up throughout time and culture. And really, this is a journey that we all will have to make. Our final journey, if you will. Tonight we will be covering the Pagan Book of the Dead, Ancestral Visions of the Afterlife and Other Worlds, by Claude Lecatou. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive, specifically Annie Kay, Soul Rising Studios, and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. Your contributions help pay server costs, purchase reading material, and it helps to pay for the electric fence that has become a necessity to keep the Wampus Cat out of my herb garden. She keeps sneaking in and destroying my Nepeta Kataria. If you too would like to join the Esoteric Archive, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. All members get early access to shows, and those contributing $3 or more get extended episodes. Once again, that is patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, let's get weird. Before we get started on this rather serious topic, I thought we should take a look at an article that's a little bit more lighthearted. This article is entitled, The 12 Most Dangerous Dinosaurs of All Time, ranked by a paleontologist. The paleontologist in question is Cassius Morrison, and he made a ranking of dinosaurs based on their threat level to humans. So let's not waste any more time. Looking at the 12 most dangerous dinosaurs of all time, we start with number 11? Yeah, I have no idea why, but this article is claiming to have 12 dinosaurs, but it starts with number 11. Anyway, number 11 is the Iguanodon. While this herbivore is named for its unique tooth formation, its most deadly feature are the giant spikes on its thumbs. I've got to say, Morrison has the best quotes for this article. For example, in reference to the Iguanodon, he says, It has like a really big thumb spike, like a knife. So we have a top 12 article that begins with number 11, incorporates the idea of dinosaurs and humans living side by side, and then is followed up with a quote like that, this article is going to be amazing. Morrison continues by saying, quote, Because it's an herbivore, it would only do it in self-defense, meaning stab people with its thumb. So that's why it's at 11. I don't know about the rest of you, 
but I have been chased by far more herbivores than I have been chased by carnivores in my lifetime. In fact, chickens and turkeys also have gigantic spikes on the back of their legs. And let me tell you, being chased by them is not fun. Are they deadly to humans? No. Are they dangerous? You'd better believe it. Next up, ranked at number 10, we have the Ankylosaurus. These things had armored plates, rows of spikes, and a clubbed tail that is just high enough to break your kneecaps. As Morrison so eloquently states, quote, If the tail was to whack you, you'd be gone. Coming in at number 9 in our dinosaur threat assessment is the family of sauropods. Some dinosaurs are a threat because they will actively engage with you in a harmful way. And some dinosaurs, like sauropods, are just so big that they don't care. This is a threat level of a whole different scale. Have you ever considered that something could be so big that you could drown in its footprint? That is just one possibility with sauropods. The sauropods walked a swampy, marshy environment, really churned up the soil, and they made that sort of quicksand with their footprints, quotes Morrison. These things could kill you when they're not even around. But there's a way that these things could kill a person out of sheer negligence that a lot of people probably haven't thought of. But don't worry, paleontologist Anthony J. Martin not only thought of it, he calculated out the force of it. We know that these animals were super tall, but what would happen if one of them, say, vomited? How much force could be generated from this excretion? And then how much subsequent force could be generated on top of that from the distance that it has to fall from the dinosaur's head to the surface of the earth? It turns out there's more than enough force to kill another dinosaur, so... It definitely would kill a human. This is not a discussion I ever thought I would have on this show. Number eight, we have the Triceratops. Honestly, it's a 10-foot-tall warthog with horns that are longer than most people's arms. It's either going to trample you or impale you. Pretty straightforward with this one. At number 7, we are finally reaching the level of dinosaur that will actively be trying to do you harm. We come to Gigantosaurus. Gigantosaurus is the biggest land-dwelling predator to ever walk the earth. Morrison has to have some sort of incredible insight on this one. He says, They often hunted the bigger sauropods, so the reason why it's quite low down on the list, is that it might just see humans as not being worth the effort. End quote. <sighs> well, that was anticlimactic. In number six position, we have Spinosaurus. Morrison delivers another award-winning quote here. He says, People might be, like, running away from, like, one of the land-based carnivores and think, Oh, let's get in the water. 
but if you went in and around water, it might see you as a nice little snack. In the fifth position, we have Tyrannosaurus Rex. Again, Morrison says that the only reason that it's number five and not higher on the list is a sheer sense of scale. A full-grown T-Rex probably wouldn't want a human for food, but a juvenile T-Rex would certainly try to take a bite out of you. By that logic, wouldn't a juvenile Gigantosaurus be just as deadly? Hmm. For number four, we have Gigantoraptor, which is not at all what you think. Gigantoraptor is not a part of the Velociraptor family, but more in line with the Ovaraptor species. This means instead of having teeth and claws, it has a giant beak and claws. Gigantoraptor was basically an eight-foot-tall cassowary. Remember what I said earlier about how aggressive turkeys and chickens are? Yeah, this thing is worse. Now, in number three, not to be confused with the previous entry, we have the Mega Raptor. I feel like that name needs a little bit of an echo, maybe some reverb and some bass boost. Let's try this again. Mega Raptor! Yeah, that's better. What makes the Mega Raptor so terrifying? Well, imagine a Velociraptor, but approaching the size of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. This thing isn't just going to run you down in an open field. It's got rather long, dexterous forearms, so it might just pick you up and play with you for a while. In the number two position, we have Carnotaurus. This thing has a short face and comically short arms, but they're still rather terrifying. Just a little tidbit that's not mentioned in this article. The most terrifying thing about Carnotaurus is that we find their skulls covered in bite marks. Bite marks from other Carnotauruses. These things fought like junkyard dogs. If you don't think that's terrifying, I don't know what to tell you about number one. Number one is the entirety of the raptor subspecies. Not only are these things roughly the equivalent of a human in both size and intelligence, they're also incredibly fast. But the most terrifying trait, according to Morrison, is their tenacity. He says, quote, If you were to run into the forest or a heavily overgrown area, T-Rex or something larger may stop pursuing you because of the risk it has of falling over or injuring itself. But the raptor? The raptor would have the speed and agility to keep going. And if you think hiding is an option, Morrison wants to remind you that it's also been speculated that raptors may also climb trees. So there you have it. 11 of the 12 most dangerous dinosaurs in existence. Next up, we have The Pagan Book of the Dead by Claude Lequetour. It's been translated from French, and this gives you a good example as to why I'm not allowed to speak French. This book was published by Inner Traditions in 2020, with the original French version being printed in 2019. 
This company actually does a few things that are really cool. The first being that most of their books are published using solar power. The next is that some of the profits from their sales are contributed back to the Hacienda Ria Coat Reforestation Project. I'm not sure what percentage of their power consumption is actually coming from solar, and I don't know how much they donate to reforestation. But this is one of the rare instances where a company is actively living its values. Keep all of this in mind for later, because I have some pretty severe concerns over the publication of this title. Let's switch over to the author now. Claude is a professor emeritus of medieval literature and civilization at the Sorbonne. He is the author of numerous books on medieval and pagan afterlife beliefs and magic, including The Book of Grimoires, Dictionary of Ancient Magic Words and Spells, and The Tradition of Household Spirits, a title that we will take a look at in Season 4. So what exactly is in this book? We've got a bunch of accounts of different death transitions, ethereal guides, descriptions of the afterlife and otherworldly realms, a series of common themes seen in world mythology, well, sort of. Mostly it covers Western Europe and the Mediterranean. There's a little bit from Asia and a little bit from the Americas, but not a lot. Primarily, this book is about the afterlife. And you can't get to the afterlife without death. So let's start off with kicking the bucket, shuffling off this mortal coil, biting the big one, meeting your maker, meeting an untimely end, or simply breathing your last. There are as many euphemisms for death as there are ways to die. That said, there's not many depictions of the entity that we know as the Grim Reaper. But even that entity goes by different names. Because this book was originally published in French, the author gives a few local examples. The first and obvious one is simply the Grim Reaper. The next is Demise, with a capital D. And my personal favorite... The one with a flat nose, referring to the Grim Reaper's face actually being a skull. Today, we typically associate the Grim Reaper with his oversized scythe, and sometimes he has an hourglass. But in older depictions, he could have anything from a bow to a spear, even a violin made from a single bone. You may have noticed that I keep referring to the Grim Reaper as he, but that itself is not universal. It turns out any language that is a Romance language, meaning that it stems from Latin, death is typically personified as a woman and is spoken of in the feminine tense. Now, in countries that have Germanic language backgrounds, such as English, which stems from Anglo-Saxon, the Grim Reaper is often depicted and spoken of as a male entity. This is mostly a formality of the language, because underneath that black robe, there isn't anything except a skeleton. 
And that makes a lot of sense, too, because humanity has been using skeletons and skulls as representations of death for pretty much as long as humanity has been around. For all of my listeners who grew up in the 1980s, yes, we had Mr. Yuck stickers for all of our chemicals and cleaning agents. But prior to that, it was a skull and crossbones. And really, what more do you need to get across the message, if you drink this, you're gonna die? Skeletons as a unifying theme really took precedence in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. That's when we really began to see them get used in pieces of artwork, specifically the dance macabre. There's various depictions of this artistic style, but the essential element is the same. Typically, it shows members of all social statuses, all different castes, being drug off by dancing or walking skeletons. The idea is that this was a reminder that in the end, death will claim us all, regardless of station. Reminders of this have been summed up with the phrase memento mori, or remember death. Again, it's a reminder saying that remember, we all will eventually die. Yeah, it sounds super morbid, but it was meant to remind people to be decent, be courteous, to live every day as if it were your last. Because in the Middle Ages, every day could be your last. Over the centuries, we have a bunch of these phrases pop up. One in the medieval Latin being media vita in morte sumus, or in the midst of life, we are in death. There's even a variant of this quote that has become super common on headstones. It reads, You are what we once were, and soon you will be what we are. With all these reminders of death and mortality, obviously people of the Middle Ages were looking for a way to extend their life, or even to cheat death. Now this is where things take a very strange turn. You've probably heard of the study of etymology. Etymology is the study of words and language and how it changes over time. In the Middle Ages, Etymology had a very specific use, and it wasn't exactly what you thought it might be. It was believed that if you could trace the origins of a word back to its formation, you would have the original, true word. This original, primordial word gives you the full and true essence of what a thing is. And by having access to that pure essence, you have control over it. Now, medieval scholars didn't have access to the technology and the scholarship that we do today. So when they traced back the origin of the word death into the Latin, they mistakenly translated it to have the root of to bite. And at the time, since the oldest stories that they knew about came from the Bible, they assumed that the bite 
referred to the bite of the apple from the tree of knowledge. So the tree of knowledge didn't produce understanding and wisdom. Instead, it gave people the understanding of mortality. At this point, you may be asking yourself, if they have access to the primordial word for death, why aren't there more immortals in this world? Well, it turns out medieval etymologists have mistranslated that word and misattributed its origins. In fact, the word for death actually stems from the word Mars, the god of war. So that attempt kind of backfired. The next part in this book goes into the location of the afterlife which works on the belief that there is an afterlife and that it's a place that you can physically visit. So the big question is, okay, where is it? This is a complicated question, and the answers really depend on who you ask, when you're asking it, and what the general cultural consensus is. The idea that gets the most attention in this book comes from ancient Greece. Now, we've all heard of the river Styx as being the river that you cross to get into the afterlife or into the underworld, which is sort of true, but we'll talk about that later. Originally, Styx is not described as a river. It was a blackened barrier that extended from the underworld into the heavens, and it was pierced by stars. That's right, Styx was originally the night sky. At some point in history, Styx transitioned into being one of the rivers of the afterlife. The other rivers include the Archeron, the Coxitis, also known as the River of Lamentation, Pyrophlegathon, also known as the River of Fire, and the Lethe, the River of Oblivion. The final task for anyone going through the Greek afterlife was to drink from the river Lethe. Now, it's called oblivion for a reason. When you drink from those waters, you will forget everything that happened in the mortal realm. Throughout the centuries, the geography of the Greek afterlife was eventually expanded upon. There weren't just a series of rivers. You also had the fields of mourning. You had a crossroads, which one direction led to Elysium, and the other led to Tartarus. Elysium essentially being paradise, and Tartarus being hell. There also eventually came to be an iron tower, which was filled with clanking and torture and screams. Granted, a lot of this came about in the medieval period, and it drew its inspiration from the stories of Virgil and Ovid. There's also a brief description of various afterlives through other cultures, but for some reason this book tends to focus on the negative afterlives rather than paradise. For example, the Babylonians had Aralu, the land where people cannot see anything. In Greece, we have Hades, the land of no return. The Germanic tribes had Hell, spelled with only one L. And it's basically where people go if they're not otherwise going to Valhalla. These would be the people who die from sickness or old age, which was seen as shameful in their culture. The Finnish people have Tuonela, 
It's an underground kingdom that exists under a lake. Or underground and across a black river. It really depends on who you ask. The Laplanders, now commonly known as the Sami, have no real specific location mentioned, but it is believed that a person's soul could detach from their body while the body still lives. Sami shamans had a practice where they could go into the realm of the dead, retrieve a person's soul, and restore it to the person's body. This isn't a resurrection as much as it is a way to prevent someone from going through life on autopilot. There's also a description that generically mentions the Celts, which seems to focus primarily on the British and Irish, but oddly enough doesn't include Gaul, which is weird because the author is French. In all honesty, this section right here is a hot mess. It includes Tirnanog, which is part of the realm of fairy, but it's equated to part of the afterlife. This whole thing is a mixture of beliefs, locations, time periods. It includes islands for the afterlife, burial mounds, or really, there's some descriptions that say the afterlife is in the north. This section is very reminiscent of an older academic practice that lumped in Ireland, Scotland, and England into a singular group called the Celts, rather than see them as distinct, unique cultures in and of themselves. It comes across as being very lazy, and ultimately, it should have been left out of the book entirely. From here, I'm jumping forward in the book a bit to a small section that associates sleep and death. It's an interesting comparison, but it honestly makes a lot of sense if you think about it. In ancient Greece, the titans Hypnos and Thanatos were twin brothers. Hypnos represented sleep, and Thanatos was death. They look similar, but they are very, very different individuals. Even the modern word cemetery has its origins in the Greek word dormus, which has to do with sleep. The last bit of information that I got out of this section is really an anecdote. Who is the Sandman? The term Sandman comes from Germanic-speaking countries and has the translation to mean emissary. It really has nothing to do with sand. That part came from a mistranslation from German into French, which eventually translated into English. Instead of being an ambassador who brings you messages in the form of dreams, he's some dude who uses magical sand to make you sleep. Do you remember that I mentioned in the beginning that I had issues with this book? The section on the Celts, that was just the beginning. Now we reach chapter 3, which is entitled, From the Christian Beyond to the Literature of Revelations. I want to remind you that this book is entitled The Pagan Book of the Dead, so having an entire chapter dedicated to Abrahamic religions at best is just weird. At worst, it's proselytizing. The whole chapter is about the evolution of the depiction of hell and the Christian afterlife. 
It sort of comes from the Greek and Roman beliefs of the afterlife, but ultimately it's all based on medieval Christian theology. Chapter 4 doesn't get any better. That one is entitled Hell, Purgatory, and Paradise. By this point, I'm about a hundred pages into the book, and I am suddenly very, very confused. Chapter 5 goes into the chivalric romances, which kind of makes sense because through those stories, we get a glimpse at previous cultures and beliefs. Specifically, we begin to see this comparison between the realm of fairy and the afterlife. We also see the transition of graveyards being a place of rest to graves being a direct portal to hell. Finally, we get to the chapter on medieval Scandinavian literature. Much like in Ireland, a lot of this stuff was recorded by medieval monks. But this allowed them to record previous Germanic heathen beliefs in the form of legends and mythology. Do you remember how earlier I mentioned one of the, quote, Celtic beliefs was that the afterlife was simply to the north? Chances are that came from the Anglo-Saxon beliefs, because medieval Scandinavian literature records their afterlife, their other world, being located to the north and slightly to the east. You don't necessarily have to die in order to visit the other world. You just have to travel beyond the sun and stars and across a golden bridge. If you somehow find a way to do that, you can go there and come back. As time progressed and Christianity gained a greater hold in Scandinavia, the location of the other world slightly changed. Now you had to travel beyond the stars and the light of day to locate an island, and upon that island, there was a cave. You had to go through this cave to get to the other world. This belief goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks who believed that you could get access to Hades through the mouth of a seaside cave. These stories influenced the early Christians who eventually moved into Scandinavia, influencing their faith and their religion. This is even more pronounced in later literature, in which the journey to the afterlife requires you to travel underground, through a smoky veil, through a sunlit region, across a bridge which goes over top of swirling dark water filled with weapons, past two armies of the dead who are fighting each other, and then over a high wall. Despite this being a Christianized story, we still see traces of old Germanic beliefs, specifically with the two armies of the dead fighting each other, which harkens back to Valkyries selecting the chosen dead who will live in Valhalla fighting, feasting, and being reborn until Ragnarok. That said, the view of the Scandinavian afterlife has slightly shifted over time. To see how it's changed over time, we're going to jump to the 14th century epic, the Saga of Egil Onehand and Azamund Slayer of Berserkers. We're not going to be talking about Egil or Azamund for this part, though. We're going to focus on Arinefia, the troll woman. Now, long story short, 
Arenefia wanted to stop a wedding, and in order to do so, she was tasked with retrieving three items from the underworld. She needed to find a cloak that fire couldn't burn, a drinking horn that never emptied, and a chessboard that could play itself when challenged, which is basically a chessboard that could be played with a single person. The drinking horn was the easiest one because apparently in the underworld, you can just buy those. After making her purchase, Arinefia came across three giants playing chess. In a move that would make any Dungeons & Dragons player proud, Arinefia decided that the easiest way to retrieve that game board is to simply kill the giants. After ambushing them and killing the first two giants, the third finally just collapses on the ground and starts screaming, What do you want? What do you want? When he finds out, he goes, Just take the stupid board! I don't even like chess! Now that she has the first two of her three items, Arinefia goes looking for a cloak that fire can't burn. And guess who has that? Old One-Eye himself, Odin. In typical Odin fashion, the very first thing he does is try to trade it to her in exchange for sex. But she wasn't going for that. So he goes for the next best thing. A near impossible challenge. He says, Oh, if you want my cloak, you'll have to jump over fire. Yeah, there's some sort of weird irony there that you have to jump over fire in order to get a cloak that is impervious to fire. And this book doesn't really elaborate on how she did it, but she did complete the task and retrieve the cloak. What we see in this story is that the Scandinavian afterlife has shifted into being something more like mythology or legend, more akin to the realm of fairy. This eventually becomes more pronounced as time progresses, with the underworld no longer being inhabited by men or giants, but instead by trolls and dwarves. The access points for this underworld shift from under lakes and underground to being accessed through mountain caves. In an even more pronounced parallel to the underworld being part of the realm of fairy, by the late 1600s in Scandinavia, the underworld is seen as part of Haldraland. Now, Haldra are the equivalent of Scandinavian fae folk. Haldra are typically depicted as beautiful women with either a cow tail or a fox tail. And in some reports, they have a hollow back. It's really unclear what that reference means, but a lot of people assume that that means that they have no soul. Again, this would parallel fairy lore of the time, in which people were trying to figure out where fairies fit in with Christian cosmology. As you can see, there is a lot of syncretization around belief in the afterlife and the underworld as it applies to the mainstream European culture. The underworld was originally a place of gods and monsters, and eventually a realm of fairy and fae-like entities. And now, it's just a place where the souls of dead people go to congregate. Except in a few instances where the underworld is a place for people to be tortured endlessly, because we all know that the best way to encourage good behavior is by threatening people with bad behavior, right? 
So let's talk a bit about the book itself. I will be completely honest. I almost did not review this book. I was so incredibly pissed off that there was so much attention being given to Christian theology in a book entitled The Pagan Book of the Dead that I almost ignored it entirely. That's when I remembered that this book is a translation. On the title page, there is the original French title of this book. So I plugged that into Google Translate. That title is very much not The Pagan Book of the Dead, but instead it's entitled The Dead, The Afterlife, and The Other Worlds. That title is far more holistic, and as a result, it makes the content much more understandable. So as long as you know ahead of time that The Pagan Book of the Dead is not going to be dealing in any way, shape, or form with paganism, the book is actually pretty good. Now for the elephant in the room. I don't know whose decision it was to change the title of this book, and specifically to change it in this manner. But it is a very disingenuous choice. I feel like it was an attempt to shoehorn this book into a niche topic when it already is a niche topic in itself, albeit not the same one. So in summary, I want to restate that this is not a bad book. It's just not the pagan book of the dead. And if that's what you're looking for, there's other books that will better serve you. In fact, in a few months, that is exactly what we will be covering. That said, if you still want to give this book a shot, I'll post links to it in the show notes. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. If you would like to hear more of their music, you can find them at bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. Archive members, stick around. There's actually a good bit of information still left in the appendices of this book. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. It's time once again to open the Esoteric Archive. We've mentioned in previous episodes that, in the past, basically everything was an omen of death. But that's mostly us reflecting on the past. Most of the time it was a very specific circumstance in a very specific location. Hi, I'm Jimmy Coe. And I'm Stephen Hawk. And we're the host of the Cosmic Sponge Podcast, where we explore the unknown from UFOs and cryptids to unexplained disappearances and ancient mysteries. If you're looking for strange stories that will keep you on the edge of your seat, jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or search for Cosmic Sponge on your favorite listening platform. Head on over to our website at www.cosmicsponge.com to get access to all of our content, including a full list of platforms where you can enjoy the show.